I don't personally don't want to preach a sermon on hell ever, but you know, we're kind of on that topic. And um, so it, it makes us kind of wait the Bible, the way that God weighs it in terms of what he cares about, what's relevant to him, I guess. But I think the last question is especially heavy and something that all of us think about across uh, cultures, across age groups, across ethnicities. There's this sense in which we're asking what happens next. And maybe if you've explored any religion, this was the priority This was a question you were bringing before Buddhism and Hinduism and and the Christian faith because there's something daunting and and kind of humbling about this concept of eternity. And even in the Bible, in, in Psalms, it says that God places eternity in all of our hearts, that somehow all of us can't help but think about eternity. And even I think people who are atheists have to subside those questions because if it's real, even the slender chance that it's real for for the person who isn't a Christian, think about the ramifications of it. Uh, When you look at, let's say you look at the carpet, right? Go ahead and look at the carpet and pick one of those light spots on the carpet that's threading the carpet together. Just one of those light spots, okay? That. If you think about what eternity looks like, that's like the extent of your life. Whether you live 20 years or 30 years or 80 years, that white spot thread is your entire life, about this long. And eternity is this carpet coming from one end to the room to another. But imagine this carpet going down the 57 freeway, hitting the Pacific Ocean, crossing it and being in Hawaii and getting a a suntan and then getting to China. And instead of going around the world, it takes off into space, hitting the moon and the sun and all the way into the outer reaches, right? Whatever, however space ends, it's there. I mean, our lives dwarf in comparison to eternity. And if you sit back, whether you're Christian or just kind of asking questions I believe in that space between waking and sleeping, we're all asking, what happens? Is there something else? And if there is, what is it like? And I love that Jesus in this parable starts to describe some of the afterlife. He gives us some pictures for us to think about. And also, I think the Christian faith from my understanding of religions is in some ways the most clear about what it looks like to enter into heaven, um, the, the bar that it sets, and what, it, what the prerequisites are, if you will. In the next passage, <clears throat> we look at Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. Jesus is kind of in the middle of his parables, and all the parables revolve around the theme of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. I like the kingdom of God more, that concept that God is ruling over the kingdom. Um, And so here's this parable. In verse 24, it says, Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of God is like a man who sowed good seeds in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the weeds sprouted and formed heads, uh, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servant came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? Next slide. 
The enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because when you are pulling up the weeds, you may also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it to my barn. Next slide. Next slide. <clears throat> so here we have an uh, illustration, a very simple story, where a farmer's scattering seeds with his workers, and then, you know, his neighboring farm, for maybe he was an enemy of this farmer, and they were competing in the wheat sales. And so he wanted to sabotage his neighbor in order to sell his wheat for, like, some bricks to build a road or or to build, like, a city. So he sends a robber in, right, to his hexagon, and... Um, and he sows weeds into the wheat. And it's a very specific type of weed. Um, here's the Greek word for it. I can't pronounce it, and, but you can always trust my spelling. But the specific type of weed it is, when it grows out, it actually looks very similar to a wheat. And especially in the early phases, it's very hard to distinguish the weed from the weeds, especially this specific type of weed. All right, and I think there's, uh, there's implications here moving forward. So the disciples in the next uh, passage, that we kind of skip a passage. We're going to double back to it next week. When he left the crowd, he went to the house, and the d- disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. And this is a really important moment. And telling of the very reason why Jesus is speaking in parables in the first place. So many people have gathered around Jesus for a lot of different reasons. You know, some wanted to be entertained. Some wanted to be healed. Some wanted another free meal. Some wanted to see a miracle. Jesus goes into this this, uh, series of parables to give them none of those things. And it's very easy for them someone in the crowd to walk away being like, I already knew all of that about farming. It's very basic. You know, I've played settlers. And just kind of be like really bored of Jesus's teachings. But someone else in the crowd, right? These, these people who are undecided, these people who are trying to kind of follow, understand more of Jesus, who Jesus is, and making a decision to side with his disciples and follow him, or the Pharisees and reject him, these parables are kind of the self-filter, where it reveals the heart. For some of these, the hearts in the crowd, they continue to become more hardened and dismiss Jesus. But others lean in. Others, like his disciples, are, are gravitating towards him, asking him, what does this parable mean? And trying to align their hearts with, with his. What are your priorities? What, what does it look like for you to build out your kingdom? And these disciples have now called Jesus Lord and want to follow him and are about his priorities. Whereas the others who are always about themselves and kind of using Jesus are now fading into the backdrop. Or walking away. And then Jesus starts explaining this parable. He answered, uh, uh, last, the previous slide, please. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. 
The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weed are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them out into uh, the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. So um, we have this really intense visual of hell and heaven. Um, This visual of hell where it's like a burning furnace where a lot of people would depict hell. The Simpsons definitely depict hell that way. And then heaven is these the people who are righteous, they shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And, and this whole parable kind of concludes here. He says, the secret of God's kingdom, right, is that all of the earth, there's people who give their allegiance to Jesus and do not. But they, they are together. They're intermixed in this time of waiting, right? We have families that share different religions. We have workplaces that have different religions. I play volleyball with people who are atheists and Buddhists. And kind of, if you look across our society, everyone's kind of growing together, planting their family together, going to work together, going to play sports together. But one day there's going to be this hard stop where God separates people who are following him, in love with him, have a relationship with him, and those who do not. And it's an eternal separation. It has eternal ramifications. I don't know how else to explain this passage. But I hope that you give me an opportunity to delve a little deeper. So in the next slide, next slide, um, we have this concept of heaven and hell. Um, I hope, yeah. And, and I hope that, and then there's these uh, common denominators, these aspects of heaven and hell that um, are true for both or true, but then separate the two. So first, I think one of the common denominators when we look at Scripture is that most of the description when it comes to hell and heaven is allegorical, meaning not, not necessarily literal. So a lot of Jesus' illustration for hell is fire, like we just read, or outer darkness. Um, if you think about these women with the lanterns waiting for the groom, some ran out of oil and they got cast into outer darkness. That's how he describes it. And why I say it's allegorical is because you can't have literal fire and darkness, right? Because fire emits light, and therefore it wouldn't be dark anymore. But I think that there's principles for which the fire and the darkness is trying to explain or trying to uh, share with us. This idea of torment with fire, this idea of isolation or loneliness with darkness. And then there's, again, allegorical descriptions of heaven. I actually think a lot of revelations could be literal, and yet it would be like explaining color to someone who is colorblind. Even John, as he's describing revelations, he's grasping. He's grasping for words that would communicate what he's seeing from what we have seen, categories for which we would have a reference point. And you can see him struggling even in his writing. But the, the thing that I think um, makes hell 
fire and darkness, maybe torment and isolation, makes heaven this amazing city where people are thriving, where every tear is wiped away from our eyes, is, is this idea of a relationship with God. Hell, in, in the most um, maybe basic and fundamental, systemic concept is that it's a separation from God. It's having none of God's presence or reality there. It's, a, it's isolation from him. Whereas heaven is complete unity with God. You know, when I think about hell, I think, um, and this concept, C.S. Lewis writes a lot about it in The Great Divorce, The Problem with Pain, and he speaks about it in, in this way of um, like a tour bus, right? Visiting, visiting eternity, visiting God's kingdom and heaven, and then visiting hell. And I really like his explanation. Um, he, he, they get to hell, and, and it's not what they expect. It's not a lake of fire. It's not demons prodding people. It's actually the city that doesn't seem to have anything externally tormenting people. But the torment is internal, the torment are these people who become more and more self-absorbed. And so at first, they all reside in the city, but then they, there's violence and fighting and bitterness and unforgiveness. No one can find love because everyone is about using people for themselves. And then these people start moving further and further away from the city, becoming more and more isolated. And he speaks about these people as not only like a momentary decision, let's say, to reject God, but a continual hatred of God. And when you look at Revelations, it's very similar. God would reveal himself um, in very um, explicit ways, and people didn't deny him anymore. They would just hate him. They would just become more embittered towards him. And so that's C.S. Lewis's concept of hell. And then in the tour bus, someone's getting off. They just saw heaven, and they're, they're talking to this person, trying to pull them into this bus, trying to get them to heaven. And this person is rejecting him and saying, no, I, I don't want to go there. I don't want to be with Jesus. I want this. I want to continually self-isolate. I have this other concept that may or may not be true, um, but I, I really enjoy thinking of new thoughts, even if they're worse than good old thoughts, okay? So I'm like a creative in that way, but like a bad creative. And so here's my new possibly bad and not biblical thought, is that I think that it's possible that a person who's not uh, forgiven gets, if they were in the throne room of God, it could be just as tormenting as being apart from him in darkness. And we, we think about the times that God showed up in Revelations because sometimes we have this like teddy bear view of Jesus where you just run up, you give him a hug, and you kind of, you know, snuggle with him. And I think some of that's true. He's very approachable. He's our best friend. But then there's these Old Testament concepts that really kind of make God a lot more comprehensive than this, like, best friend Jesus. You know, when the Israelites get to Mount Sinai, God shows up, and the whole mountain trembles because it just met its creator. Clouds form, there's lightning and thunder, 
And then Moses was like, come on up to the mountain with me. And everyone's like, no, thank you. Like, we are, they are scared out of their mind. And Moses goes up to the mountain, meets God, comes back down. His face is shining so bright that they're like, can you cover your face? Because it's hurting my eyes. Another prophet walks Uh, God appears before him, and he's just crying, like, could you please kill me? Because this is worse than being killed. Like, woe to me, I am a sinful man. And then uh, God puts this coal on his mouth representing uh, purity and being cleansed. And then they can have some type of a conversation. And so there's this holiness that exudes from God for all of eternity, where darkness and sin kind of, like, just, I don't know how to, it just like, it feels tormenting. I think it feels tormenting to be a sinner and stand in the presence of God. We have angels who are perfect beings, but they're getting as close to God's glory, this inapproachable light, and they're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, day and night, but they're covering their eyes with their wings. They're covering their feet with another set of wings, and they're flying with a third set of wings, Because they can't, like, handle the glory of God. And what my, one of my concepts, which may or may not be true, is that, um, you know, we have this kind of idea that people in hell are just, like, climbing their way to heaven, but the gates are shut, and, like, they're getting kicked down by St. Peter. But I don't know if heaven is a better place for the unbeliever, for the person who hasn't been who is appearing before God with their sin. You know, when I think about my sin, it's pretty, there's a few things I've done in life that I haven't shared with anybody. And you know that I've shared a lot, so that's not good. Most, all of those things were like 15 plus years ago. But, but if you take inventory of your worst sins, of your worst moments, Can you even stand before your parents or your best friends? And now we think about standing before the greatest, most powerful being on the planet. The one who says, hey, all these laws I gave you in the Old Testament, they were kind of a compromise between my holiness and your ability to exist on earth. What, I, what my real bar is, is that if you looked at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery. And if you hated someone, you've committed murder. So everyone in this room, including myself, for sure me, is an adulterer and murderer. We all deserve separation from God. None of us can stand before his judgment, his righteousness. My, I have a great friend. He's lived a very moral life. But he, but he, he kind of said, hey, when I die, I'll just kind of take up my case with God. If he's real, I'll just tell him, you know, I was a firefighter and stuff. I'm like, dude, that's not, no. You're not going to make it, dude. It's not enough. But on the other side of that, because we are, f- for those of us who um, are Christians, it's really simple. S- Christianity boils down to one thing. It's saying, I'm not good enough. Especially in the eyes of God, I'm not good enough. With you, I can fake you out and be good enough. But, we're, but you're not my judge. I'm not your judge. God's the judge. And in the eyes of God, I'm not good enough. And so God came down to earth, and he died for our sins. He shed his blood so that we can be forgiven. You know, there's this great story I've shared a few times um, 
but there's these two brothers, right? I'll make it shorter. Uh, one became a judge. The other one became a drug dealer and then killed somebody. This is a f- uh, not a real story, fictional. And the uh, younger brother appears before the judge, and he tells his lawyer, hey, don't worry about it. That's my brother. He's not going not gonna to condemn me because <clears throat> he loves me. But then the older brother, being a good judge, needs to be just. It's evil for him to let his brother off the hook for killing someone. So he condemns him to death. And the younger brother is like, how could you do that? I thought you loved me. And as he's saying this, the older brother stands up from his seat as a judge. He takes off his robe and he tells the guards to take him instead. And he gets executed in his younger brother's place. And that's really what the gospel looks like. That's really what it means to be a Christian, that there's a God who loves us so much that he decided, hey, I'm going to die for you. I'm going to give my life so that you can be with me forever. And that's all, that's how you get to heaven as a Christian. There's no more hoops. There's no prereqs. I've gave the same story, the same um, gospel to people who are in prison who have done terrible things to drug addicts and and i'm like at this very moment if you can believe and trust jesus to forgive you and and follow him you're a christian isn't that amazing that his bar is so high that no one can make it but then he gives the invitation so low that everyone can cross over and be a part of his kingdom everyone can choose to be a part of Jesus' family because he does his work on the cross. And some people say, man, I'm not good enough to become a Christian. The beautiful part about being Christian is that you don't become good and then become a Christian. You become a Christian, and then God makes you good. He takes you on this journey of true goodness where it's not about our external works and doing charities. It's about our heart transforming so that when we're doing good for others, it's not about us too. It's not about our Insta story. It's really because we're trying to serve them. You know, the beautiful part of this story is that Jesus later on says Not in these words, but he says that weeds can become wheat as well. And weren't we all weeds? Weren't we all enemies of God? Sinners. People who did evil in his sight. And he says, I forgive you through my son. And I give you his righteousness. You know, as a Christian, even I still struggle with this. Sometimes I'll ask for forgiveness the tenth time. and, And God was gently whisper, you're already forgiven, now just receive it. You know, you're not asked for it again. I gave it to you that first time you asked. Now just live in my forgiveness. Or there's another, or one time I sinned, like every day, and, um, and I just felt so terrible. And then God's like, hey, come to me like you've never sinned. After you ask for forgiveness, you can come to me because I forgave you and I gave you my righteousness, right? Jesus doesn't just forgive us. His righteous life that he lived, where he did everything correctly, he didn't just avoid sinning. He did everything right. He gave us that life so that when, Jesus, when God the Father looks at us, he sees his perfect son and he delights in us because he sees Jesus' righteousness 
when he looks at us. And he doesn't see our sin because he's forgiven us. And God's just like, come to me like you've never sinned. I know some of us just feel so distant from God. Like, I did all these things wrong. I don't even know how to traverse it. And God said, I've forgiven you, and I've given you my righteousness. You can come to me like that. Um, in the next slide, I just think about this in-between time. And that's the first part of this passage where Jesus tells his workers to wait, his angels to wait before the harvest. Wait till that day has come. And this is why he asks them to wait. He says, but do not forget this one thing. This is another book. Uh, Peter wrote it, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The reason there's this period of waiting, the reason why Jesus hasn't come back yet is that he has this heart for those who don't know him. To repent and to say, I'm a sinner, I do need your forgiveness, and I want to follow you. And in his waiting, he's calling us as a church to be a part of sharing his gospel, to telling boldly our friends that there's a God who loves them. There's a God who wants them a part of his kingdom. You know, I, I think that if we, I, as a Christian, I, I kind of get how hard it is to even think about hell. How, how little time I spend conceptualizing it. Uh, even, and, and that's even before trying to bring it up to anyone. But if it's a reality, if the Bible's teaching about it, we need to have clear understanding of eternity and allow that to inform this little piece of our life. I just, I just think about what, what Jesus meant, where he would go from one city to another, one crowd to another, and, said, and say, the kingdom of God is near. And, and what I have in my mind is that he would show up and these crowds of people or this, this space, wherever he resided, now had this other road to God's kingdom where it didn't exist before. You know, it's like they were all on this one road and Jesus shows up. This, the first missionary shows up. And this other road to another kingdom, another king, another life appears and is accessible and is close. And I hope that wherever I go, that the kingdom of God would be close because I'm, I'm there. And God's kingdom resides in me. It resides in you. I remember uh, hanging out at this party in my younger days, single, no kids. I could stay up late. And I was, like, working on my sermon there. <laughs> but people were getting drunk. Some people were starting to st- start to fight. And I was like, shh, I need to think about this next point, you know? And then uh, two people ventured over, and they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm writing a sermon. And they're like, why are you here you're, if you're a pastor? And I thought, I'm not a pastor at a party. You're people at a church, because wherever I am, God's church is. And then we started com- com- having conversation. He got her pregnant. They were dating. They were going to get married. But because they were having a kid, they had spiritual questions. And they were looking for a church that would let them come like that. And I said, come to my church. I'll take care of you. I'll be your pastor. And I wonder where God's called you to pastor. 
I wonder where God has called you to be a missionary. I wonder where God's called you to open up a new kingdom for people. To say, there's a God that loves you and forgave you and wants you to be with him. You know, some of you came into this room asking those very questions. You came into this room because someone cared about you enough to invite you in to hear a message about God. You know, all of us came that way. All of us came because someone cared enough about us to share with us about this God who loves us, who forgave us, who died on the cross for us. And so today, as I close our time, I just want us again, again and again, to remember the gospel, to remember why we are a part of his kingdom and how God's called us to bring his kingdom to everyone else. Would you all close your eyes? I don't know if some of you guys might be like, dude, I'm down. I'm down to ask Jesus to forgive me. I know I messed up. And I kind of want to follow him. I've been here for a long time, for weeks or, or months. Or this is my first time, but I just, I just know God wants me that he's real. I would love to pray this prayer with you. And then for some of us, we're not sure anymore. Maybe we're like the weed who grew up looking like a Christian. We went to Sunday school. Our parents took us to church every week. But when we look in our hearts, we're really about ourselves. When we think about Jesus separating the crowd, we're like, man, we're not sure where we would fall if there was a line on the sand. Maybe we look like Christians, but we're really not. But today, again, this prayer is for you too. To ask Jesus to forgive you and to say that you want to follow him. And that's all it takes. After that, God lives inside of us. And he holds our hand on this journey and he helps us become closer and closer to him. And that closeness extends into eternity. And that's really what heaven is. This extension of our relationship with God on earth, falling in love with him, knowing his love into eternity. So if you're willing, just go ahead and pray this prayer with me. Jesus, thank you so much for loving me. I know that I've done evil things. But I pray that you would forgive me. And I want to follow you and love you. I want to give my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen. God, I just bless everyone who prayed that prayer, maybe for the first time, maybe for the 10th. Because it's always true if we're following you. I pray that you would guard each seed planted today. That you would be real in our lives. And that the reality of you would hold us through death into eternity, where we get to see you face to face, where you wipe every tear from our eyes, where your dwelling and our dwelling collide. We long for that, Lord. We long for that here, and we long for the perfection of that later. We long for you. In Jesus' name, amen.